we continue tonight in our chapter, our review of chapter 48, Surah Al-Fat, chapter 48 to the chapter of the victory. And today we want to look at the topic of the display of the days of Jahiliyyah, the days of ignorance. Um, you know, now when we remember the story that we've been going through over this last uh, three weeks now about the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Muslims being stopped, being pro prohibited from going for the Umrah. Uh, we've seen a lot of things that have been going on between the Muslims and the Mushrikeen. Uh, obviously for the most part it was a very peaceful disagreement they had. Uh, at one level, although the Muslims had no uh, armor, no, you know, they didn't come with any weapons because they're doing the Umrah, so they were very much um, at the whims, really, of the mushrikeen, because the, the polytheists could have easily launched an attack with the weaponry and, and animals. They had the, you know, the, the infantry and cavalry, and they could have destroyed the Muslims. Um, but luckily, kind of, you know, cooler heads prevailed on their side, and they recognized the fact that they need to enter into negotiations with the Muslims, with the Muslims of that time, with the Prophet and the Muslim community, um, and obviously that's where we got to the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah. So Allah has already given us the psychology of the Muslims, what they were feeling, the anxiety, the stress that they were under. We looked at that concept of the sakina, the tranquility Allah was giving to the community of believers. Uh, we also re realized that the Allah was giving us kind of an insight into the mind of the polytheists, and I think a few verses ago. Uh, Allah, or maybe is yesterday even, Allah talked about the fact that he had uh, kind of prevented the polytheists from attacking the Muslims and the Muslims were then also subsequently given that uh, kind of reassurance or you know guidance not to go forth and attack uh, because as the verse had mentioned that they would have inevitably killed innocent people in Mecca including the Muslims. Uh, so today in this discussion, Allah is going to show us one major reason why the Mushrikeen of Mecca had this attitude towards the Muslims of Medina. Obviously it was, you know, at one level, you know, they were upset because the Prophet brought Islam. He was bringing about this, so, you know, social revolution, um, bringing about equality amongst the people. Uh, but they had a lot of other uh, kind of baggage with them, cultural baggage, which was preventing a lot of them from coming to Islam, right? There were a lot of Meccans who converted to Islam, who were you know, idol worshippers, but they saw the beauty of the Prophet's mission and message. They understood the beauty of the Quran and they converted. But there were still obviously a, a large segment that were not on board yet with Rasulullah. So in this verse for tonight, verse 26, Allah is going to give us uh, one aspect of why these people were as they were. And we're going to also try to draw a lesson in our own lives uh, based on what they were also uh, going through. So I'm going to divide the verse up into two portions. Uh, it's not a long verse, but again, the translation has to be elaborated upon. So the beginning of the verse, Allah says, "Audhu billahi min ash-shaytani rajim." Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. If jaal al-ladina kafaru fi kulubihim al-hamiyata hamiyat al-jahiliya. Allah is saying that recall that time, O Muhammad, when those who disbelieved, meaning the polytheists of Mecca harbored in their hearts fierce zealotry coming from egotism, tribalism, and feuding. The zealotry particular to the age of ignorance, the era of Jahiliyyah, which prevented them from allowing the Muslims to come into the city of Mecca for the Umrah. So Allah, as, as, as you'll recall that this verse, or this, rather the entire chapter, is being revealed at the Prophet in the sixth year after the Hijrah, basically starting... Um, 
from when they're prevented from going to Umrah and all the way in that time period from the peace treaty all the way till they reach back to Medina. This entire surah is coming down to the Prophet over these days or maybe even weeks that it took for this entire event to take place. So now Allah is telling the Prophet that the reason why all of this is going on, why the mushrikeen are preventing you, why they're preventing the Muslims from going forth to the Umrah, from performing these rites, Keeping in mind, as we mentioned, maybe on the fourth or fifth night, that Mecca was the kind of city where, because the Kaaba was there, and even though the, the, the Quraysh were uh, mushrikeen, but they had such a level of reverence and respect for the Kaaba that they did not prevent anybody from coming to Mecca. Right? It was basically an open city. It was a, a, a safe city. Uh, our scholars give us these examples that history tells us that even the polytheists of Mecca that even if somebody who was the killer of one of their fathers were to come for the Hajj or Umrah and they were in Mecca, out of respect of the Kaaba, they wouldn't even fight against that person or attack them. So that's how much they view the sanctity of Mecca, that they wouldn't even kill or attack somebody that was their staunchest enemy. And they didn't, they didn't prevent anybody normally from coming into Mecca because of the... Uh, the kind of preeminence of Mecca as a land of spirituality, they allowed everybody and anybody who wanted to come to come into the city. So by them preventing the Muslims, that showed a very strange side of their character because they, if they're going to let anybody else in, well, why wouldn't they let the, the Prophet and these other companions who were formerly a part of their group to come into Mecca just for those three or four days to perform the Umrah and go? So Allah says, well, one of the reasons why they did this is because as He calls that, He says that they harbored in their hearts uh, this hamiyata, hamiyat al-jahiliya, this zealotry, tribalism, this what Arabs also call asabiya, this very uh, strong nationalism, discrimination, uh, which was particular, as Allah says, particular to the age of ignorance. So this era of jahiliya. So I'm going to try and touch upon that tonight, uh, what that jahiliya means. Uh, in the next part of the, before I go to the next part of the verse, I just want to focus on this word hamia. This only comes up once in the entire Quran, and that's in this verse. And actually, it comes up twice: al hamiyata and then hamiyat al jahiliya. So, the entire Quran, six thousand chapter, uh, six thousand verses, thirty, forty thousand words, and this word only comes up in this verse and twice in this verse. That's the only time it's ever used in the Quran. And so, this word hamia, it literally means to flare up. Um, it means to kindle a fire. It means to become extremely aggravated and furious, uh, to be inflamed, to be enraged. So to get it to a, such a level of anger, you know, like we see, you know, when, sometimes in English we say that this guy was so upset his blood was boiling, right? We use this, this term in English. So Allah is saying that these uh, Jahli Arabs were so incessantly upset and aggravated and just their blood was so you know, boiling at the fact that the Muslims had this audacity to come to Mecca, um, that Allah calls it this Hamiyatul Jahiliya, right? That they're just so burning inside and enraged at the fact that the Muslims would even have the audacity to come towards the sacred shrine. Um, and so, as we see, you know, as we'll see in the next part of the verse, that, you know, in response to this irrational and hot headed attitude, Right, they have this hamiyatul jahiliya, this burning rage and aggression in them. We'll see that Allah gives sakina, tranquility, peace, comfort. Allah talked about it already previously, I think twice, if I'm not mistaken, that Allah gave sakina to the Muslims. And again, we'll see it in this one, in this verse, right? Because 
One of the things that we should realize about Islam is that we're not a religion that fights fire with fire. Right? Yes, there is a time to stand up for our rights when people are transgressing us. But really the theme of the Quran many times is to fight fire with forgiveness. Right? And Allah tells us uh, multiple ayat where Allah says that if two people or two groups are at odds with one another, Allah says, Idfa' billati ahsan, ahsan. Repel the evil in the best possible way. And then Allah continues and He says, when you do that, it is very well possible that those people who are once enemies, Allah says, Ka'annahu waliyun hamim. They might become as if they were close, intimate friends with one another. Right? Even in the law of Kisas, right, we have this law of retribution where if a person is innocently killed, we have the right in a just Islamic government with a just judicial system to have the law of Kisas. If your loved one is killed, there is a right for that person, if they're found guilty in a court of law, to also be executed. But the Quran says that if you forgive, it says that is closer to taqwa. Right? So there's this very constant thread in the Quran that it's, Quran is not wanting Muslims to necessarily be people who always avenge atrocities against them. It is necessary sometimes to ensure there's a balance in society, that people can't think, well, we can always you know, aggress against Muslims or other groups and get off with it scot-free. Um, but definitely there is the theme in the Quran that we should not always be fighting fire with fire. And we should also remember, right, that this peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, which enraged the Muslims, and, where, and that's where Allah talks about the sukun, is that they refused Amir al-Mu'mineen to write Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. They said, well, we don't believe this God of Rahman and Rahim. So they told Amir al-Mu'mineen, they told the Prophet that write Bismik Allahumma, right, in your name, O Allah. Because they believed in Allah as one of the gods, right, in the Kaaba. And then when Rasulullah was dictating the, the terms and he said, you know, min Muhammad Rasulullah, from Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, that's where Suhaib, who was on the side of the Mushrikeen, said, well, we don't recognize you as the Messenger of Allah. And if we did, then we wouldn't be in this argument with you. So that's where the Prophet also allowed the removal of Rasulullah. So all of these things are building up, maybe, you know, this, this animosity the Muslims are feeling. But again, Allah is saying, take it easy, calm down, cool down, right? Don't be like the, don't be like the Mushrikeen who have this hamiyah, this very deep tribalism and, and this anger and rage and heat within them to take it easy. So the second part of the verse is where Allah says, uh, Sorry, the first part, Hamiyat al-Jahiliyyah. Let me just define Jahiliyyah in, in a, bit, a bit more detail. Um, so the term Jahiliyyah, it refers to the pre-Islamic era of intellectual ignorance and darkness in the Arabian Peninsula before the revelation of the Qur'an. So anytime you read Islamic history, you'll see whenever they talk about the Asr of Jahiliyyah, the era of Jahiliyyah, it's that era before the revelation of the Qur'an primarily, um, which doesn't mean the Arabs didn't have a culture. No, they had a culture, they were civilized, they weren't barbarians in, in, in one sense of the word. They're very uh, eloquent poets, for example. They had those who could read and write, which you could count literally on the fingers of one hand in every generation. Um, they were the greatest in terms of their poetry capabilities. So they had a level of intellect. It was more of an oral tradition at their time. Um, but the Quran talks about them and the history refers to the era of Jahiliyyah as being devoid of revelation, devoid of even following previous prophets because you'll have to remember that 
Before Rasulullah, the last prophet was Prophet Isa, Prophet Jesus salam. And 600 year gap approximately, just a little over 600, between Prophet Isa and Rasulullah. Some of the Meccans were following what they call the Dina Hanif, right? The teachings of Prophet Ibrahim, the pure monotheistic teachings that had in some semblance carried on. Um, you had some people who were of the Christian and Jewish tradition who were in Mecca. So there were some remnants of Christianity or some semblance of Christianity and Judaism in Mecca. Uh, but for the most part, because of various factors, they had lost religion in its totality and they were more of a tribal community. Um, and they had basically lost that revelation from Allah. So Allah is not picking at them because they have a gap of revelation, but really more so that when the Prophet comes to them, they recognize him as a sadiq, as al-amin, as a trustworthy, as a person of immaculate character. They recognize the truth of the Qur'an. Many of these Arabs would actually recognize the beauty of the Qur'an and the truthfulness of it. And even they would tell one another when the Prophet was in around the Kaaba reading Qur'an, they would actually say, put cotton buds in your ears because this, the words of the Prophet will convince you of, you know, of, of the beauty of the words. So they recognized the beauty of the Qur'an and the, and the message, but they were still steeped in, as we look at as, in, in this jahiliyyah, this hamiyat al-jahiliyyah. So in this era of jahiliyyah, the, as we see that the Arab society was characterized by their polytheism, their idol worship, they had 360 idols in the Kaaba, they would build idols out of dates, out of these you know, dates that we have in Ramadan to break our fast. They would fashion a statue out of those dates. And guess what happens when you get hungry? You eat the statue, right? So they had all of these weird, uh, very uh, uncommon traditions. Uh, very tribalistic society. If, uh, two war, if two tribes went to war, it could be over something minor, and it could continue for generations. It would never end that battle. Right? And it would get to a point where sometimes in history we'd get, we have these st stories where two tribes are warring, and if they were to ask one another, why are we fighting? They'll say, we have no idea. It's just an ongoing feud between our clans, and we're continuing it because something happened hundreds of years down, you know, in, in the past. Uh, it was a very, uh, it was a culture very uh, steep in social injustice. Slavery was obviously rampant. Women were commodities; they were commodified. Women had no status in Arabian culture. Uh, and so, this term jahiliya it covers this idea that society was devoid of divine guidance. Uh, no moral values, they had a lack of spiritual enlightenment. Um, and we even use it today, right? Even Muslims today will use it for any society or individual that they want to characterize as being immoral or not having values or morals. We'll say those are jahli people, they're ignorant people. So even in our common language, Muslims still use this term to describe even contemporary uh, communities and societies. Uh, one interesting point, I'm not, I'm not going to bring all the verses, but actually this term uh, jahiliyyah, it comes in the Qur'an four different times. You can look them up if you'd like in the commentary. The first is in chapter 3, Surah Al Imran 154, where Allah talks about people that have the thought pattern of, of jahiliyyah. How they think is not based on, on a correct mindset. And it's in, uh, it's in, obviously in a specific context, it's about how people viewed Allah in this verse how people think negative of Allah, how people think bad thoughts of Allah and how he deals with his creations. And so Allah talks about uh, 
people who have that jahli concept of Allah as the creator, as the maintainer. Um, in chapter number 5, Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse 50, Allah talks about the laws of jahiliyyah. And in that context, it's about people who would not judge based on laws of, let's say, fairness and justice for society. It's on the laws of jahiliyyah. So again, it's about the rich, the powerful, the elite, the top clans of society, that they basically make the rules and the rest have to suffer. And like this couple years ago, we had this whole uh, 99% versus the 1% movement and people were upset at the 1% of society that were basically able to manipulate governments, right? And really have laws designed to suit them. Uh, so this is the concept in chapter number 5 of the laws of Jahiliyyah. Uh, chapter 33, which is Surah Al-Ahzab, 3333 should ring a bell for all of us because it's Ayat of Tathir. Where Allah says, "Inna yudhib, Muhammad." So in that verse, in the beginning, Allah talks to the wives of the Prophet. These are the wives, uh, more so the ones in Medina, and Allah talks about them not going out, displaying their beauty, um, or even leaving the house in a very uh, pretentious manner. And Allah talks about them not doing this in the form of the women of the era of Jahiliyyah. So Allah is telling these wives of the Prophet, you're not like the past women of Jahiliyyah that were involved in all of these things. You're a different status of women, you need to act differently. So Allah warns them by using this term, the people of Jahiliyyah. And then the fourth is this we're looking at in chapter 48, Surah Al-Fats, chapter 20, verse 26, this, uh, the pride of ignorance, right? how the mushrikeen were dealing with the Muslims who were trying to make the Umrah to Mecca. Uh, so the second part of this verse is where, uh, where Allah brings about the conclusion where He says, فَأَنزَلَ اللَّهُ سَكِينَتَهُ عَلَى رَسُولِهِ وَعَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَأَلْزَمَهُمْ قَلِمَةَ التَّقْوَى وَكَانُوا أَحَقَّ بِهَا وَأَحْلَهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمًا and so Allah says, and so in response, Allah sent down His gift of inner peace and reassurance on His Messenger, what we call, what the Quran calls Sakina, and upon the believers, and bound them to the word and the spirit of faith, piety, and reverence for God, taqwa, this kalima to taqwa. They were, mo they were most worthy of it and entitled to it, and Allah has full knowledge over everything, or of, of everything. So again, this is the third time in this chapter Allah is now reminding us of Sakina, of this tranquility being sent down upon the believers. Obviously, Rasulullah doesn't need the tranquility, the sukun, because him being the messenger of Allah, he is being, uh, and we've seen this, he's being told what's happening stage by stage. He's being given ayat of what's happening and what will happen in the future. Uh, but still at the same time, Allah says he's sending that Sakina upon his messenger, and we even believe, right, that the Prophet, although we believe him to be the best of creation, but he can and he still ascends higher spiritually every time. Um, he still gains more and more knowledge every time. He doesn't have unlimited knowledge because only Allah has unlimited knowledge. He still is dependent upon Allah for everything he needs. Um, so Allah says that he gave... Uh, this sukun, this tranquility, this peace, both to the Prophet and the believers. Um, and he bound them to this word of taqwa, meaning that he wanted, he wanted them to follow the rule of the, of the rule of law, the Qur'an. Um, 
that whatever they're going through, all of these challenges, that they still recognize that they are bound to follow the Quran. Right? We don't follow Machiavellian politics where it's an eye, you know, that's an eye for an eye, or even what was in the Old Testament. We don't believe that the ends justifies the means. Right? Muslims could have said, well, we're going for something good, Prophet. We're going for the Umrah. What, what problem is there if we go and attack the mushrikeen? We have a right to go to Umrah. Right? But the ends doesn't justify the means for Muslims. We can't say that, well, we can break the law to do good. Right? Even we see this in our own lives. Right? A very practical example, we have rules about ghasmi property. Right? If a namaz time comes, for example, and um, you're in some public setting, okay, like a park, no, definitely then you can you know, make wudu and pray in a park. But if it's a private building, right, you're in a mall or something, or a privately owned company, you can't just say, well, it's prayer time, I'm going to pray wherever I want. We have rules of ghasbi, we have rules that you have to have permission from people. Even to make wudu, you have to have permission. If you, I mean, most, most times if you have to make wudu, if you go to a McDonald's or Tim Hortons, it's a public establishment, you can use the water, there's no issues. But if there was a time where it's, you know, a sign clearly says private property, let's say it's farmland or it's something like that, or there's a well on a property and it's clearly labeled as private property, then you can't just go and say, well, it's, I'm making wudu for namaz, so the, the goal is to pray so I can do whatever I want. No, because that water is not your permission to use. That land, if there's a sign that says private property, I can't just go and hop a fence and pray namaz there because... It's time for prayers, right? No, you have to still follow the rules that Allah has laid down. Uh, so Allah is making it known that this kalima to taqwa, this, uh, that we are all bound to this word of taqwa, that we have to recognize as believers that we follow the rules of religion and that we don't break the rules just because we think we are doing a good action. And then Allah tells us that, you know, that these people, the believers were uh, more worthy and entitled to it entitled to and more worthy of, uh, for example, following the law of Allah. Because their believers are expected to uphold a higher level, right? Um, like in our society today, right? We have Muslims and non-Muslims. Non-Muslims, I'm not going to categorize them as always breaking the law, but if they break the law, we can't say, oh, well, well they're doing it, so we can do it. No, we as believers, we're, we're always tied to a higher level, right? We're we should have higher expectations for ourselves. Just because other people, you know, rip off this and, and, and you know, cut corners, this and that, you know, we should not be doing that. We should be the best that we can be. We have a hadith that tell us that um, if you as a Shia living in a society with 100,000 people who are non-believers, you need to be the best in that society. Because people will look and judge you by the label that you have as a Muslim as a Shia. Right? So we're expected to be the best that we can be. So if you look at these uh, verses up until now, and, and, and even this verse, chapter 26, we see that Allah is giving us kind of these kind of polar opposites, right? He's showing us a, the mushrikeen of Mecca. They're very hard-headed, this hamiyatul jahiliyyah that they had. Whereas the Muslims have sukun, they have tranquility, they're, at, they're, they're calm, because they're following the dictates of the religion and the prophets. The polytheists are having this, this hamiyatul jahiliyyah, this prejudice. They don't want the Muslims to come into Mecca. The Muslims are open-minded. They're willing to come into Mecca, even though they know that they could risk being attacked. But they're open-minded because they recognize that these mushrikeen, 
They might worship the gods, the false gods, but at least they would be open-minded to let them come for Umrah. So the Muslims are completely opposite. Prejudiced on the one side, and the Muslims are very open-minded. The polytheists are, uh, are shown as being having this anger which stems from this era of Jahiliyyah. They can't let bygones be bygones. They have to keep this war and feud going on. They don't want to give in to the Prophet and the Muslims and allow them to come in for the Umrah at this stage. Whereas the Quran paints the Muslims and the Prophet being complete control and command over their nafs. Right? They are willing to forgive and forget the mushrikeen. They're like, let us just come and do the Umrah. We have no qualms with you, know, with you as human beings. We have an issue with your shirk, your polytheism. But we're willing to come and, and, and you know, sit down and negotiate. They didn't have that anger. So it's interesting how Allah compares and again contrasts the attitudes of two different groups, right? And again, this is something that if you read the Quran, you see happens on a very frequent, frequent basis. Allah gives us different groups of people of heaven, people of hell, uh, and, and why they're going to one destination. So Allah always gives us this comparison between groups and a contrast to allow us to obviously make up our own personal decisions and our own choices in our lives as well. So I'm going to just delve into this term uh, for the next few moments. It's Hamiyat al-Jahiliyyah. We touched upon it briefly. Um, so I've already gone a bit through that, but I'm going to give you just a couple of other um, thoughts at a very practical level of it. So we talked about the fact that this zealotry, which was particular to the age of ignorance, um, it was used four times in the Qur'an, and that this is something which is uh, condemned in the Qur'an. Uh, at the time of the Prophet, obviously they were dealing with Jahiliyyah, based on Arab culture and their uh, classification of, of people of you know the rich and elite and powerful and then you had the lower class and then you had the slaves and you had people of color who were at a lower uh, level of a society so we talked about that already about how they had that jahiliya and that they that did not that, that basically was preventing them from allowing the Muslims to come in for the Umrah I want to touch upon it more how it relates to our lives today in the 21st century. Right. Uh, there is a very beautiful passage in the Quran found in chapter 35, Surah Fatir, verses 27 and 28, where Allah says that, do you not see that Allah has, Allah sends down water from the sky, the rain? Then he says, then we bring forth with it produce of various colors, shapes and tastes. And in the mountains there are streaks of white and red of various colors, due to the flora or the variety of stone and rock, as well as raven black. And likewise, human beings and animals and cattle, diverse are their colors. Of all his servants, only those possessed of true knowledge stand in the awe of Allah. Surely Allah is all glorious, all forgiving. So one of the beauties of Islam, and I can say this very, careful, very um, carefully and also very with confidence, is that unlike the Bible, what the Jewish and Christian uh, you know, call the Old Testament, where races of people are based upon sins of prophets. You can look in the Bible about how the African community came into be. Black Africans, according to the Bible, were because there's a story in the Bible about Prophet Noah, Prophet Nuh alayhi salam, after the flood. They say in the Bible that he got drunk, the billah, and he went to sleep on the beach, and he was completely naked, and his children saw him with no clothing on. 
They saw his private parts, and then when Prophet Noah woke up and realized this, he cursed that child and said that basically from you will be the nation of the Africans, the black Africans. Now, how do you indict an entire community like that is beyond my understanding of how contemporary Christian theologians understand the Bible. But if you look at the Quran, Allah clearly says, Allah sends water from the sky. He says, you know, the fruits and vegetables, you go into the market today, you have, you know, one fruit as an example, apples. You have red apples, you have yellow, you have green. All of them are apples, all grow on a tree, all from the same water that Allah gives. Right? And so Allah says, you know, you have fruits and vegetables of different colors, you have the mountains that are different colors, you can just drive seven hours west of Saskatoon, you go to the Canadian Rockies, you'll see the mountains aren't a uniform color, right? They're all different colors, there's some red, there's black, there's brown spots, there's cream color in the mountains. So Allah says in the mountains there's a variety of color, and He says likewise in human beings, right? It's not a curse from Allah that you have black and white and brown and yellow and different nationalities. This is a blessing from Allah. And Allah says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مَنْ إِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ The only people who can recognize this reality and celebrate Allah are those who have knowledge, who understand the mechanics and the workings of Allah. Um, this shows us, brothers and sisters, that when it comes to discrimination, that the Qur'an has no room for us to discriminate against people, having that, that jahiliyyah, that era of jahiliyyah. In fact, actually I'll give you a very real story that happened to me. This happened about 15 years ago in Kitchener. We were hosting an interfaith uh, luncheon. It was every year we used to host, host a, an interfaith luncheon in December, and we would have in excess of 100 people from all the local faith traditions, and, and people who didn't even ha have a religion, to come and have lunch and we discuss you know religion and things so I remember sitting at a table with two Christian ministers and they were um, talking joke not I mean they were laughing about it but they were talking about the biblical narrative of why we have different languages you know if you look at the Bible why we all speak different languages some of you have Urdu some are Arabic some are Farsi some are English some are maybe other languages the Bible believes that at the early on in, in human history, in, in Baghdad or in Iraq, people were trying to build a tower to get up to God. Right? The Tower of Babylon, maybe you've heard this story. And so what happens in the Bible or in, in Christian literature is that God sees the human beings building a tower and God gets scared that these people will build a tower to reach to me. So the story is that Allah made them all speak different languages. So they began to talk in different languages and it's like they're babbling to one another. I think there's a website, Babel, to learn different languages. Right? This is where the story comes from. And so these two Christian ministers are sitting with me over lunch and they're joking that this is, this is God's mechanics, why we have all these languages. And I said, what kind of a God do you follow? You know, my God, Allah, says that color is a beauty from God, it's diversity. My Quran says that language is a creation of God. Right? The fact that we all come from different countries, we all speak different languages, but we all unite on English, is a beauty from Allah. It's not a curse that, you know, that we're trying to meet, reach God and we're building a tower. You can't even reach God on the Burj Al Arab in Dubai. So how are you going to reach God with a couple of stones, you know, in, in pre-modern uh, Baghdad or Babylon, right? 
Um, so this verse, and I just want to talk about this racial discrimination for a bit. So we have this beautiful hadith of our Prophet where he says, O humanity, surely Allah has removed the pride and conceit that existed within you during the era of Jahiliyyah, during the days of ignorance in relation to your forefathers. Surely all of you are from Adam, and Adam was created from mud. The best servant of Allah is that servant who has the consciousness, the taqwa of Allah. The Prophet in his, one of his sermons would say, there's la fadl, there's no greatness of an Arab over an ajam, over a black, over a white. We're all equal, except when it comes to taqwa, that is how we are to live our lives. The Prophet also mentions in the hadith that your being an Arab is not the basis of your personality, nor a part of your essence. Rather, it's just a language you speak. So when we say that guy is an Arab, it just means they speak Arabic. It doesn't have anything to do with their personality, their essence, their human beings at the end of the day. And this, the Prophet says, whoever is negligent in their actions, in doing good, then the pride that they have from their father being an Arab, it won't help them. They won't make up, it's not a covering over their religious defects. Being Arab doesn't mean you're God's chosen. Doesn't mean you have any greater affinity for the Quran or the Prophet. It just means you were born into an, a, a family or a country where they speak Arabic. Nothing else, nothing more than that. So is it wrong to love people of my community? Right? Most of you are from Pakistan, I'm going to guess. Is it love, is it haram to say Pakistan Zindabad? <laughs> you know? No, it's not wrong. I'm, I'm Khoja, so is it bad for me to love my community? No, in and of itself it's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with us loving our own community on one condition. And this is mentioned in the hadith of the fourth imam. He says the only time when prejudice or discrimination, or first he defines it, he says that blameworthy and punishable partisanship, prejudice or discrimination, is when a person considers the evil people of their community to be better and prefers them over the good people of another community. So if I say my khujas, even though they're the worst of people, if I say that they're still the best and I, I put, give them preference over, let's say, Pakistani community, then I'm doing asabiya, I'm being tribal. But if I say I love my community and they're great, but they have flaws, and I recognize the flaws that we have, because we all, all of our communities have flaws, as long as I can recognize that my community is not perfect, that we all have defects, then the Imam is saying, he says, it's not considered a partisanship or bigotry to love your own community. Rather, it is when you love your community, um, despite their wrongdoings and aid them in their flaws, that's where the problem comes. So to have a Pakistani flag is no problem. But to recognize that in the society there are problems, you have to recognize that. Because that means that you can now hopefully begin to change the situation. That's my Khoja community, that's Iraqi, that's Lebanese, that's Indians, that's Canadian society, right? We love Canada, we're here, but we can't overlook Canadian aggression or atrocities, especially against indigenous. If we were to say Canada, we care, we love Canada, whatever they've done in history, then we're a problem because then we're condoning what they did to the indigenous population. But we can say we love Canada, but we have to ensure that these flaws that they have done and major blunders and major sins and crimes, that they have to be accountable. So you see that there is no problem loving your community, respecting your community, praying for your community. 
But as long as we don't give them preference over the, the, the sinners in that community, preference over the good of other communities, then we're still within the framework of the teachings of Islam.